I'm invigorated by the fact that this new youthful energy, even though some of us are old as fuck, but it brings <laughs> me back to the days where we just recorded and wrote and were mm-hmm. creative for the fun of it. Hello and welcome to Where the Living Room Used to Be, a podcast about Rhode Island's music scene. Hey everyone, it's James. On this episode, I connect with Sage Francis to talk about his label Strange Famous Records, and releasing music over the last 25 years, how giving it all as an artist can take its toll both mentally and physically, and some of the exciting things he's working toward in the near future. So I hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, please check out some of the previous interviews I've done with strange famous artists B. Dolan and Jesse the Tree, and make sure to follow Where the Living Room Used to Be on Instagram, uh, where you'll see some show photos, flyers, and a whole bunch more from Sage's time in music. I'm going to start this off by letting you in on a little secret. What's that? Strange Strange Famous Records didn't officially start until 1999, but I retroactively (laughs) said it started in 1996 because that's when I made my first demo tape. Yeah. That's just what kickstarted the whole label stuff, independent label stuff. Um, But yeah, so we, we've been, we've been like, we put 1996 on our gear and on our website. Yeah, really, I wasn't using that name until 1999 with the um, "Sick of Waiting" mixtape, which was the first. Yep, yeah, first of the "Sick of" series. So, yeah, <clears throat> but that was you know a question I had of like, what was that that first release? And I, I don't know. I mean, I'll count it. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, the first release was in 1996. Was called the Homegrown Demo. Yeah, some of those songs appeared on. Um, mixtapes that came out down the line but yeah it was just a four song demo that i was selling at hardcore shows and punk shows and i was trying to get on because you know rhode island had a really good hardcore scene in the mid to late 90s yeah um and not a lot of live hip-hop so i was attending because my friends were punk kids who were bringing me along to their shows Mm kind of showing me the ropes as to how the independent music scene worked in their realm and gave me a very, I mean, it was a big, it was more educational than any schooling I could have had. Oh yeah. Um, okay. You know, it just was being in the mix of it all and seeing how it all went down and understanding how communities work. Cause with hip hop, our experience with it was mostly from major labels and mm-hmm. big money behind projects that were, you know, people were on UMTV raps and, um, the source magazine and by the time you know i was able to access a lot of that stuff it just seemed so corporate mm-hmm. while still being underground because it wasn't accepted by mainstream um the mainstream yet but it was big money at the yeah, same yeah. time you didn't look it didn't look like you could do anything without having a million dollars behind you mm-hmm. um or you know or a major label that knew w- what they were doing so for me to give up on the idea that Def Jam was going to come around and discover this weird white kid and want to put him on. 
I, yeah. I kind of, you know, I, I took that hat off and put on another hat. I was like, you know what? I don't care if it doesn't look pristine. I don't care if it, you know, doesn't sound polished. This is the kind of hip hop that inspires me mm-hmm. and the new kind of hip hop that I wasn't hearing from any other places. It was a very um, interesting time in hip hop in the mid nineties where a lot, not just our territory, but, you know, other places all over the world were discovering they could just put out their own type of hip hop without any, uh, you know, I don't know, any, any other giants letting them on their shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. What was your introduction into hip hop and when did you start writing? And, uh, you know, obviously you're famously known for coming through like spoken word and poetry and stuff like that, but like, how did you get into that? Uh, as a kid, I mean, I've, I'd need to come up with a short form of this story. A lot of times. <laughs> I know. Yeah, you can. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a kid, I just heard hip hop. I loved yeah. hip hop. It was brand new to me and it just had an energy I, I, that drew me to it. Yeah. So I tried to find out as much of it as I could try to discover it in the, the tape stores, which didn't have hip hop sections. Yeah. So you really had to dig. And obviously like run DMC was getting some play and fat boys was a, a big group at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but like mean? with with writing wise like when did you actually start writing and and who were like what was that process like for you like do you remember the first rap you wrote the first poem you wrote uh yeah, like, yeah like, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't too long after i discovered hip-hop because i wanted mm-hmm. to involve myself right away okay i was raised an only child i spent a lot of time by myself and you know came up with a lot of embarrassing rap names wrote a lot of embarrassing rhymes um mm-hmm but I didn't have anyone around me to poo poo it. There was no one there to shut me down and make me yeah, feel yeah. like I could never do it. So I just was able to work in the shadows. I even kind of hid it from my family for, for a long, long time. Oh, wow. Um, just, I wanted it to be my own thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I, the very first rhyme I ever recorded, I don't know if it's the first one I wrote, but it was like, I called myself ACE. <laughs> yeah. So I said, my name is ACE. Wait, my name is ACE. And I rock the place. And if you come any closer, I'll rearrange your face. And uh, I, I remember reciting that to my grandmother while we were at like a Japanese restaurant after hockey practice one day or a hockey game. Yeah. And she was alarmed. She just was alarmed. Like, Whoa, what is this? <laughs> what is this language? Yeah. Like, here I was yeah. thinking I was real cool. It was like, yeah. here I am doing a tough guy rap. And yeah. um, now I'm. Because how old are you when you. I was like nine. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. if Yeah. Yeah. If you're like nine <laughs> years old talking about like rearranging people's faces and be like, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well now kids play violent video games. And That's kids- true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when did you start as Sage Francis start? Um, you know, was it around that time of the demo in 96 and yeah. Um, yeah. 96 is right after. Well, um, let's see. I had, I started using the name Sage um, in the early, <clears throat> in the early nineties, I guess, 90, maybe 93, mm-hmm. 94. I can't remember. I, I remember my girlfriend at the time I was reciting rhymes to her and she said, damn kid, you're a Sage. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't really know what the word was. We, mm-hmm. I looked it up. I was like, Oh, that's a cool word. But I also, I was more interested in using it as a graffiti name. Cause it was like, you know, four letters, they really mm-hmm. look, the letters look cool together. Mm-hmm. And I was an awful graffiti writer. So, um, 
I tried it out for a while and, and I was like, hey, I'm just going to call myself Sage. But then that felt weird because I knew probably a lot of other people were going to call themselves Sage or maybe other people already had that name. It just was, <laughs> it could be a generic name. So uh, Francis was my my family name that was always kind of embarrassing to me because Francis just has in hip hop felt like too effeminate for hip hop. Okay. So, I decided I liked pairing Francis with Sage and having like, you know, what is kind of cool in hip hop and isn't cool in hip hop, putting them together. And I don't mm-hmm. think there would ever be another Sage Francis. So mm-hmm. I felt safe in that. Um, and I started using that. Let's see, officially. 97, uh, 90, no, 96. So that's when the demo tape came out. And that's when I started going on um, WRIU uh, 90.3. Yeah, because a friend of mine from Woonsocket, DJ Stress, um, was doing a radio show there on Fridays with MIG uh, called the um, Underground Sound or something like I can't believe I don't remember because I was on it all the time. (laughs) Yeah, the Underground Sound. And um, so he would DJ and let me and a couple of my friends come up from time to time to freestyle and rap. And it was a huge deal to us because the way a lot of us were able to access any great hip hop or, or underground stuff was through 90.3 mm-hmm. or 88.9 WERS in Boston. Those, those were the two spots and 95.5 on Sundays had the black experience and sound with Grinch and chameleon. That was, mm-hmm. a, those are the big hip hop shows for our area. And for me to be able to be inside of that studio that was responsible for all the hip hop I was able yeah. to hear and study coming up was magical. Um, it invigorated me. It empowered me. And I took it very seriously. And I always tried to make the most of my appearances there. And, you know, I was, I could get a little out of control. I had a loose cannon quality about me. Mm-hmm. I easily could have just been kicked off and forever from that station. <laughs> from things you said. Or, oh yeah. Okay. There's a lot of stuff over the <laughs> yeah. years that eventually that wasn't even a student, but I was there so often they gave me a job. Like they gave me a slot that which they shouldn't have done, but they gave me a radio slot. And then I ended up going to URI um, Mm -hmm. and making it official. And, but really the only reason I wanted to be there was to be on the radio station. I wasn't trying to, you know, I studied journalism and I got my degree in journalism, but that wasn't my passion. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really didn't think I'd ever make money enough money off of hip hop to live off of it. But it was the more I was able to do it, the more, um, I felt purposeful and accomplished because that's all I cared about as a kid. It was that and karate and sports. So I was like, mm-hmm. I'm, I became an academic nerd for a while, but <laughs> that's just because I was paying for school and, you know, I really didn't want to waste that. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're like, you, yeah. Wanted to get the piece of paper just to yeah, yeah. make the, yeah. get the value out of the money, but into it. But uh... right, you never know. I mean, <laughs> one of the biggest lessons I did learn coming up, because a lot of kids who thought they had it made just stopped going to school or you mm-hmm. know, they gave up on any um, safety nets. There's no plan B for these people. Mm-hmm. And they suffered because of it. And I was, I was scared. Like I knew how easy it could all be taken away without mm-hmm. any warning. So um, it was important that I had my degree and I had like someone I worked with at the time was very insistent that, you know, I finished school even mm-hmm. though he wanted me to do more music stuff, but he was like, first of all, just finish school and then you can focus on the other stuff. Yeah. And when did you finish college then? 
Well, the I finally graduated URI in 1999. Okay, so that's kind of also seems like it lines up with the the bigger push, the kickoff of you know yeah. the Sage Francis career of all the mixtapes and album and stuff like that. Okay, exactly, and that's when the battles all started getting bigger and bigger, mm-hmm. um, and the spoken word also started getting really huge at the time. And I had gotten into spoken word from my previous college. I went to Dean College in Franklin, Massachusetts, and um, in 1996, another reason I love using that year is uh, I was introduced to spoken word mm-hmm. through Patricia Smith, who was a writer at the globe or maybe lost her job at the globe, but her poetry and her performance was so captivating that I knew from that moment forward, I was going to involve myself in it. And I told her that, and I bought her book and I just was like, there was something clicked in me when I saw what she was doing, because I had always felt ham tied by the fact that, I wanted to rap, but no one was giving me beats. And every mm-hmm. time I would rap, it would be acapella. So that's what these people were doing in the spoken word realm. So I just was like, I'm just going to bring my hip hop to the spoken word circles and go from there. And mm-hmm. it was a new mic to be in front of. It was a new audience to be in front of. And it um, thankfully introduced me to different subject matter that was not so acceptable in hip hop, but it, I was able to explore it in, uh, the poetry world, just being more vulnerable. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, less cool. <laughs> you know, it yeah. wasn't about how dope you were. It was about yeah. how dope sick you were. You know. Or yeah. 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 Just not. Yeah. <laughs> I did the different side of partying. You know, like the real yeah. side of partying. You know, like no one talks about the the hangovers and the loneliness or whatever. I guess, but uh, they do. Kinda, now. They do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, going back. Uh, 20 uh 25 years or so it's it's uh especially at that time it wasn't uh too common so again you just push so many things forward with that and um but you know with with strange famous i mean obviously we'll we'll kind of get into uh, later in your career you were signed to some labels but were you pushing to be on a label at that time like was the start of like strange famous because you tried to get on a label and nothing was happening or because you just wanted to be independent and wanted to do what you wanted to do. At first I was open to being on any and all labels. I had Mm -hmm. no preference. I, if a label knew how to put my music out and get it in stores and do it officially, Mm -hmm. that was enough for me because I didn't understand that side of business at all. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, um, I knew how to do things in the DIY realm. So that's, Mm -hmm. You know, for me, that was fine to do Strange Famous Records as a DIY project, all DIY stuff. And then the longer I did that, the more I learned the ins and outs of the industry and built the infrastructure for a more official label that could do all the things I was hoping another label would do for me. It Mm -hmm. did take a long time because I didn't have the capital. I didn't have the staff, but um, I had a, you know, incredible fan base and the internet was pretty wild west at the time. It was Mm -hmm. brand new. People were starting to learn how to network um outside of their local territories and build Mm -hmm. with people in the midwest and you know in europe or the uk it was everything just started to grow incredibly fast Mm -hmm. and i stayed on top of all of that as much as i could it was it was thrilling to have access to people outside of rhode island and boston Mm -hmm. uh, because it just felt like we were trapped there it was like we didn't have much of a voice if we couldn't get outside of new england yeah, and get shows outside of New England, and that all started happening all around the same time. And thankfully, right when I had graduated from college, and I was working at Ben and Jerry's on Fair Street in Providence, um, 
that was my very last job until enough shows were coming in that I, I saw I was able to pay a couple months rent. And then, you know, I could make the risk and say, all right, I'm going to stop working. I'm just going to focus on music, um, mm-hmm. throw caution to the wind, but it looks like it's going to work out. At least it'll pay my rent for the next several months mm-hmm. and I can build my my mini empire from here while i'm sweating is some kid who doesn't got any loot is buying my necklace along with my same exact khakis and army boots what this is blasphemous since adidas tried changing his logo there ain't nothing been as whack as this probably a stunt being pulled by animal rights activists because of all that third world country garbage but i'm a pacifist so while these monkeys sweat open my name brands that exchange hands from enslaved lands i wonder if i'm the same man without reward for what i bought but can't still afford this is the type of self-realization that might have killed the lord i didn't mind working free as a walking billboard but now I want my money back as the ice spilled and poured onto the floor. I did see a distorted reflection of my Nike hat. Now I don't know how others might react. For me, it was an unsightly act that helped me get my psyche back. I stood five feet back, afraid that it might strike me like your clack clack. You think I'm kidding? Think it's no big thing? What I seen made my heart hurt, stomach turn, throat burn, teeth cringe, spine tingling, and ribs sting. I noticed that the swish symbol was nothing but a whip in mid swing. I don't look at myself in the mirror because I'm a narcissist. I simply like to watch myself exist. Now I'm in a fog and mist. Now my reflection is anonymous. This. That probably wouldn't have happened without other labels stepping in, such as uh, the first official label. The first official label <laughs> that was operating on a big level was Anticon. Mm-hmm. So I was in the mix of the Anticon kids because, you know, some of them were from Maine um, or New Hampshire. It just was a New England thing. And then yeah. Seoul alias rest in peace and a few others um, dj mayo they moved to california to do this their thing in the bay area um but then when they came back and visited new england they heard some guy named sage francis was talking shit on the radio (laughs) station (laughs) they wanted to come visit and see what was going on Mm -hmm. and uh you know we had a contentious origin our you know at first we weren't friends we weren't really cool we were very suspiciously eyeing one another like are you oh, really? real are you real are you real are you real <laughs> can you really do this you know like yeah, are yeah. you authentic i don't know are you yeah yeah and, uh, <laughs> so eventually that blossomed into a working relationship um man but so much happened in such a short period of time it's really tough to break it all down mm-hmm. what's important though is the fact that they were putting in a lot of work on making themselves known in hip hop and separating themselves from the pack sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. But, and I was associated with them just cause we started doing shows together and uh, appearing on each other's songs here and there. Mm-hmm. And by the time I won scribble jam in 2000, which was the biggest um, battle uh, in hip hop at the time it was it wasn't just mc battles it was djs it was graffiti it was b-boying so it was like a big deal it was like this thing people from all over the world would travel to once a year in cincinnati mm-hmm. and um and the fact that i won and i was i was selling my mixtapes i couldn't make enough mixtapes they were just selling i could not make enough of them to have more in stock Everyone, everyone was noticing that, like everyone saw that it just was like, there was something going on. Anticon had their infrastructure in place. They had their distributor in place. They had publicity in place. They had their fan base. I had my fan base. And then when everything culminated, it, it was like, it was almost a no brainer, even though I think they had to have a vote within the Anticon circle 
whether it was okay to have Sage Francis on Anticon or release a Sage Francis album on Anticon. And I feel like I got over by one vote. And, okay. Um, because of the history, because of the contentiousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, I don't, we got to let this guy into our circle here. <laughs> yeah. Partially because, but partially that, but partially because I was too, um, by their standards, I was too um, regular hip hop. I was too boom bap. I was too uh, okay. normal. Not, I wasn't far left field enough for them. I gotcha. Um, which I see, I can understand, but there was a lot I was bringing to the table that was, you know, even though I sound like an East Coast rapper, I was doing st- stuff and talking about stuff that isn't typical of East Coast rap. Mm-hmm. But once they saw, you know, it ended up being their highest selling record on Anticon and it, it blew the op- doors open for a lot of other stuff. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you know, a lot of opportunities came about where I could have worked with many labels. I just got more cautious at that point because I was like, all right, now I'm not as desperate as I was before. Now I, mm-hmm. I have some capital. Now I understand a bit more about the industry. Now Strange Famous Records is actually, it's feeling more and more legit. We've mm-hmm. got our own distributor um, who's putting out my mixtapes. Because back then you didn't even need a barcode on your stuff. You could just press up whatever you wanted and set, you know, send a thousand to the distributor. Yeah, And they would just send them out to the stores and then they pay you for it. You know, it wasn't yeah. like, weren't getting sound scan or anything like that but selling thousands upon thousands of tapes and cds basically just you, you make them by hand and sell, sell them send them by hand sell them by hand everything it was working yeah. lovely but there was also the opportunity to go bigger than that and how mm-hmm. do you do that without um losing part of your soul i guess your you mm-hmm. know your original spirit and uh, i feel like you know i was very cognizant of that and i tried to you know, make sure nothing would sway the type of music that I make and mm-hmm. nobody would get in the way of what I knew was best for my albums, the way they're supposed to sound, what I'm supposed to do on them and who I'm supposed to work with. So um, eventually Epitaph became that, that record label for me and they elevated the Sage Francis name um, and recognition level. Mm-hmm. Even though it was already exponentially rising at that point, they just hopped on board right at the right time for it to make sense for me to work with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just skipped maybe four or five years there, but it, it, <laughs> it all felt like it happened in the blink of an eye. You know? Yeah, I'm sure it was a whirlwind for you with everything because, uh, yeah, just, you know, from what I've you know heard and read, just you were at this constantly, you know, it's like it wasn't uh, like you were just always playing like touring playing shows you know i mean just the creating stuff like the um you know i would like to backtrack to some of the mixtapes just because I, I find it fascinating i i came up a little bit through like the punk scene a little bit the diy stuff i'm still hand making records like right now i have you know like uh so you know with those mixtapes like or what was that operation like for you? You know, 99, was it you making tapes like in, in, uh, and like dubbing them and cutting and printing these things and like, yeah, sending, well, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah the beginning <laughs> yeah. it was me sitting in my room with a dual cassette deck, um, yeah. making one tape at a time, you know, high speed dub the tape. Yeah. Um, the reason the impetus for that was I needed something to sell. Like I was doing mm-hmm. various performances and I had some stuff on vinyl, but most people didn't have record players. Um, 
other stuff just was scattered. I had live radio recordings. I had live show recordings. Mm-hmm. I had studio stuff that didn't belong on any official album. And I had enough to fill a 90 minute tape blank tape. Yeah. So, you know, it was popular at the time for DJs to put out mixtapes, but not rappers, you know, rappers yeah. would appear on DJ mixtapes. Mm-hmm. And here I was thinking, you know what? I got enough material to fill this whole tape. I'm going to put it out as a mixtape. I don't want it to, I don't want to present it as an album because the sound quality is all over the place. It's not supposed to be um, experienced as an album, but listen to all this cool stuff, mm-hmm. all these different styles, all from different eras. I had older stuff on there. I had brand new stuff on there. I'd have spoken word stuff, hip hop stuff, and it would all work together because it was part of an energy in that time period that I wanted to encapsulate and capture, put it on something that someone could buy and support me financially, that therefore mm-hmm. saving me from having to get another job and disallowing what would eventually happen, which would be like 10 more mixtapes and several more studio albums. So mm-hmm. it was important for me to get those together. So I would sit, make all those. It was tedious as hell. Mm-hmm. Eventually I got my hands on a more professional two, uh, tape duplicator, which would make, three tapes at a time very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I do all this, the, the artwork myself, uh, go to Kinko's, make copies, use scissors, cut and paste everything. Yeah. Um, that's all, you know, I did that for over 4,000 tapes. I like, wow. um, I know for sure it was over 4,000 cause I did at least 2000 of the first sick of waiting tape. And then the still sick of waiting tape was another 2000, but I'm pretty sure I, I made 4,000 of each of those at least. Um, I never kept track. I just was making them as I could as yeah. I went. Yeah. And it would all sell. And I, you know, I always was wishing I had just enough money for it to be get like a mass production done. Cause I would save money in the long run, but you know, I didn't have enough money for that. I just had enough money to keep making them and keep going to radio shack, you know, get more <laughs> blank tapes and figure out ways to get cheaper tapes made. Yeah. And that's all I was doing. And then man, maybe just as tedious was doing once the CDR technology came about, I would sit up in the WRIU uh, studio because they had a computer with a, a CD burner mm-hmm. and it would take 10 minutes for every CD to burn and one out of 10 CDs would uh, be bunk. Like, it yeah, would yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. <laughs> so you sit there for 10 minutes and then it wouldn't work out. You'd be like, God damn it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but here I was printing money. That's what I, you know, I, while I was doing that, I was using um, AOL instant messenger. That's how I learned how to type. I wasn't much of a computer guy at the time, but mm-hmm. here was the opportunity. So I jump on uh, AIM with the the username sage kills with a z very cool and uh and i opened myself up i'd let people know on the forums what my name was so people would hit me up while i was waiting for these cds to burn and i would just start building a relationship yeah fans and of course napster was huge at the time and you could chat with people on napster so you would see what um artists they had or what music they had in their catalog so i could search sage francis and see who had my stuff on Napster and then I could hit them up directly and be like, yeah. So I'd be like, Hey, you know, we got this over here. We got more stuff over here. I'm going to play a show there. You know, I build these relationships with people much cooler than in Spotify or any of the new streaming services, even though at the time I didn't know it at the time I was a little, you know, I felt like I was losing money, but really it was, Mm -hmm. 
it was a great business opportunity. I just didn't have the foresight. Luckily, I didn't like say fuck this entirely. I, you know, I utilized it. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I do remember being upset that people were quote unquote stealing my music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely like a disruptive thing when it happened. And obviously like with, you know, Metallica, whoever, you know, came out, but yeah, like flash forward to now. um, Yeah. I mean, streaming services, they've somehow found this uh, weird place where people think that they're paying for paying for music, but no money actually makes it to the artists or even when they do. I mean, I guess it's technically some money, but you know, like you're making a fraction of what it what it is you know so um yeah they've stripped they've somehow managed to strip um the audience's guilt mm-hmm. uh, sense of guilt with napster they knew they were stealing you know they knew yeah it was just like, oh, like something uh, for free but yeah. since they pay a ten dollars a month to a service that provides all this music mm-hmm. on streaming to them it's squared away everything's squared away uh yeah there's gonna be some there's gonna be some change like drastic change mm-hmm. in order for musicians um to see a, a adequate amount of money for the music that they make mm-hmm. i've you know i've heard some lo- like lovely ideas I, w- I would love to be implemented at some point s- such as one would be um if you listen to a song or an album more than five times maybe you pay a dollar f- to be able to listen to it um in the future more times yeah maybe a one-time fee you know like if you're listening to the same thing over and over maybe at a certain point you should have to pay a dollar yeah you know something minimal like that but if enough people pay that dollar if you know a thousand people are listening to my music my one album five times that's enough to say hey maybe you should you know yeah pony up a little bit for this one artist yeah I mean, and that's similar. I mean, that kind of leads into uh, Bandcamp obviously does that where you can, you know, obviously there isn't any streaming money that comes to an artist, but if you listen to a record, whatever it is, three times, then they'll, it's not mandatory, but they'll ask like, hey, if you want to listen to this again, you should probably buy this, you know, (laughs) like, and at least they have that, that hurdle that's there. So um, I didn't know that they did that. That's Yeah. Yeah. So like uh, the artists, like you can set that on your band camp of like how many times you want someone to listen to it before that prompts them. And, um, and they do kind of bring in some of that guilt. Cause if you, you can like bypass it as a, as a listener and then a, a heart breaks on the screen and like it breaks the heart. But yeah, I mean, I was, you know, interested to to kind of hear, you know, you're talking about 
Napster. We're talking about streaming. You are like pretty well known for physical uh, products, you know, pressing vinyl, a lot of merch and stuff like that, kind of having that more kind of punk mentality with stuff. Like how has the music industry like uh, shifted? Like, do you have any like major or key observations, you know, from your standpoint as strange, famous CEO over these 20 plus years? Like, yeah, the only advice is honestly, you can't ever feel settled if you're Mm -hmm. involved in the music business you can't feel like, all right, we've reached a plateau. Now we can rest our laurels on the fact that people are always going to consume music in this one manner. Mm-hmm. And our revenue streams will always come from these places. No, they're always changing. So mm-hmm. you always have to be aware of the changes, the shifts, how people are consuming music, how people are finding out about music and what you're willing to do um, time-wise and energy-wise, uh, which will take away from your energy, uh, creatively, mm-hmm. um, in order for the business to make sense. And, you know, how much is it worth to you? Are you going to work 90% business and then have that 10% left to actually do the stuff you enjoy with music? Mm-hmm. That's what has been like for me since the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I would say even less than 10% doing what I enjoy. It's, it's very close to 2%. Wow. Uh, but it, you know, I do have the business and I do have a lot of things that I juggle. I'm incredibly lucky to have a team that's been with me as long as they have. Um, Rhode Island's been, you know, it's where we started operating out of. And even though I moved to Connecticut, it's still where we operate out of. Mm-hmm. And we were operating the record label out of the same house where I started writing those rhymes and recording into my tape deck as a kid. That's, you know, that's its home. Um, Storm Davis. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's, he, yeah, yeah. From poorly. Drunk people and so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, he, yeah. He's been like holding things together for strange famous for so long now. Um, Cause he's the, he know, the label manager for those that are, yeah, listening. Yeah, yeah. But he goes above and beyond. Cause he yeah. understands that we're probably operating at a loss ever since the pandemic. He's thinking that I'm knowing that. Mm-hmm. I already had a talk with our accountant. He's like, my accountant's <laughs> like, something's got to change, man. Like you got to think of something else because oh, wow. like okay. three or four years operating at a loss, there's nothing we can do. You're like, you have to make a change. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I know, but I can't tour anymore. Um, I'm trying to build something else up. It's just going to take a bit more time. Storm Davis is going to hold it down in the meantime. Mm-hmm. He And the relationship that he builds and and maintains with the fan base is beautiful. It's mm-hmm. like a good, it's a good tandem. We have him and I, mm-hmm. um, and all the other artists, new art artists that we signed a couple from Rhode Island that uh, are just blowing me. Away. I just wish that the business side of things was as easy as it was when I was, when I was their age. Uh-huh. Now they're entering, you know, a shit storm of <laughs> like, what do we do? You know, like everyone's streaming music, hardly anyone's buying stuff. It's tough to get shows. It's tough to do shows. Um, and we, we don't have our weeklies anymore. The local radio is not supporting local artists. Yeah. Everything collapsed, man. Everything that we once enjoyed bit by bit when it fell down, I just kept looking at it like, man. And it first started, I remember when I first became ultra aware of it was when um, Clear Channel started buying up local venues in every city. Mm-hmm. And I that's when I did the Fuck Clear Channel tour in 2004, which was at the time my biggest tour of the U.S. And mm-hmm. uh, 
I think we did 44 shows and I just did not care. I was like, no, we're going to call it fuck clear channel. <laughs> um, I started, I wanted to raise awareness about what they were doing and how they mm-hmm. were like ruining local scenes by buying out these venues and then giving priority to uh, non-local acts, making it tough for local artists to, you know, hop on certain bills. Mm-hmm. Um but then, you know, it happened with everything else. It happened with the radio stations. It happened with the weeklies, newspapers, magazines, whatever, um, record stores that all started shutting down. So you didn't have that local record store support. Shout out to, you know, um, what was it? Tom's ear? No, no Tom's. Tom's tracks and Tom's in your tracks. ear. That was Tom's my tracks. spot. Yeah. In yeah. your ear was across the street. Yeah. Tom's yeah. tracks. That was the first place where I had Sage Francis was written on the window when my album came out. Wow. Um, and when I saw that, you know, like I could have died on the spot. I was like yeah. right next to Neil Young. You know, I was like, oh, <laughs> snap. That's awesome. Yeah. Tom was my dude. He was a grumpy dude. But, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is also something I kind of talked to uh, to be Dolan about when I interviewed him. Like Strange Famous does seem like a a great family uh you know like that so i'd like to kind of talk about the roster and kind of talk a little bit about what that is for you you know like and and how uh people i mean you kind of mentioned it a little bit with anacon and stuff like that but like how do people kind of get into to strange famous um you know what is what is that like are people sending you demos is it from touring and you know experiencing their live show and saying i need to talk to this person so you know there's a lot of questions in there but if you kind of want to just talk about you know, the, yeah. the other acts on the label. It's a great question because people are always asking how to do it. Um, <laughs> it's a little of everything. It's, it's, there's no one certain path, but I would say for sure, if we can see you active online and who you operate with, uh, who you associate yourself with, how you interact with others is a, plays a big part. Um, if you've shown support for anything that we do, um, show appreciation for what we do. That's, that can be big is, you know, like sometimes people will hit me up with their project and be like, all right, it's pretty cool. I'll check them out. Like they don't follow a single one of us. They, you know, they've never come to a single show of ours little, I know that sounds petty, but you know, you need to be super good, like incredibly good for me to say, I I'll bring in this total stranger. Who's never really shown interest in what we do. I'll take him on and teach him everything that we know and give him all our resources so that they can elevate. Um, yeah. The way it's been happening recently, it, it, because there was a long time people, I would just get bombarded by demos and that almost never turned into a signing almost. I can't even recall if that ever worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still get them from time to time. People send them in the mail. What I do like about that is, is it shows initiative Mm-hmm. those little things show initiative it shows like you looked up our address you put together a package put it in the mail you left a nice note cool mm-hmm. um but i don't know just for a while it was when i was touring heavy that's when i was able to see uh local acts from territory to territory mm-hmm. some that were local heroes that looked like they were always going to be local some mm-hmm. may have been local outcasts who i could see potential in where i'm like it may not work here in your town, but this is dope. Like this is mm-hmm. gonna, a lot of people are going to really make sense of this mm-hmm. and appreciate this. So I picked up a lot of artists after I like toured relentlessly in 2014, 2013 with the copper gone straight into 2015. It was like hundreds and hundreds of shows where I encountered all these great artists, a lot of stinkers, but a lot of great artists. 
and I kept tabs on them. And, um, you know, just meeting them in person is pretty important. I get to, you know, f- we vibe off one another, see if we feel like, you know, this is cool. Um, so I, I, there was a big signing around that time where we wanted to start a subsidiary label called SF Digi. So strange famous mm-hmm. digital where I knew, you know, a lot of these artists weren't touring artists and they would have full-time jobs or they had families, but they were still making incredible music. And I wanted to say, just because you can't tour and it wouldn't make sense to manufacture a lot of physical material to have distributed because we would all take a loss. Mm -hmm. But what if we show our support, um, promote you, promote your name and just do everything digitally where there are minimal expenses. Mm -hmm. And if enough um, support comes from fans and we see enough of uh, it gain enough traction, then we can consider doing something more official down the line. And you can get a sense of if you really want to do this and risk it all, um, tell your family to go fuck themselves and uh, put mm-hmm. in your two weeks notice and ruin your life. And we'll do this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause that's what it takes, you know? <laughs> uh, no, it was interesting. I don't know if you know, Quinn Murphy from verse a uh, huge fan of, of them, but Quinn just posted about um, what it was like to tour, you know, and, in, in a, in a worldwide touring band. And it was a lot of that. It was like, all right, cool. I guess I'm packing stuff up, putting it into storage. I will see my family when I see them. And um, it's just the realest thing. I mean, I, I did not do anything to that level, but yeah, there was just, uh, you know, from my experience of touring, it was just, you know, some birthdays missed some, you know, like job, like better jobs put on hold just because this one, well, I mean, to have some time off and whatever else it was. And, um, it's, it's a weird thing that a lot of people probably don't necessarily connect. They just look at Quinn and they look at verse or they look at Sage and say, wow, you're Sage Francis. And you're like, well, I've played thousands of shows. I've, you know, cut and pasted, you know, thousands of cassettes. Like this is what it takes. This is, you know, like a lot of like, I'll be, you know, a lot of awkward conversations with aunts and uncles. Like you still doing that music thing, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I'm still doing it. <laughs> so um, it, it is what, what it takes to, to get here. But, um, but with regard to the label, who was the, the first artist besides yourself that you signed? The first rapper we, uh, I believe the first rapper we signed was prolific. Who's from Cranston. Um, I paired him up with um, reanimator from Mm -hmm. Chicago reanimator did a lot of the production on my, a healthy distrust album and several other things of mine. But at the time they, 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 you know, I just put them together. They came up with an incredible album, beautiful album, Mm -hmm. long album, much longer than albums we do these days. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's called the ugly truth. And it was one of our best selling projects on strange famous, even though, reanimator never does shows and prolific hardly ever tours um it did incredibly well mm-hmm. and he actually just changed his name to mopes so mm-hmm. he re- he's released um an ep a-, a few months ago called mopes that i'm featured on along with jesse the tree another mm-hmm. rhode island artist and uh, black lick from virginia mm-hmm. and um and mopes previously known as prolific um has been with us he when i had my last radio show um my radio show was called true school session on 90.3 uh him and his friends came up to the radio show 
I don't know if they were there, but afterwards we had an after party that he and his friend attended and they were really young at the time. Um, so it was weird because I was this college kid. I got these like high school kids, like <laughs> very, very super skinny and, you know, look like aliens and, mm-hmm. you know, and it was weird and awkward and none, like I didn't, none of us drank. So it just was us sitting in a house, like, I guess, talking about rap, but mm-hmm. it's funny to think all these years later, here he is now, like he lives in DC, but he visits, he visits his family in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. He'll come drive down. He'll stop by my house with his children. Say what's up to my children. Mm-hmm. Um, we do videos together. He, he's he's a, a videographer as well. So he filmed the video for Party McFly, mm-hmm. which we filmed in Cranston. Um, but now he's he's like got a new fire under his ass, and he's become very um, no no pun intended. Very prolific. He's busting out tons of material, mm-hmm. lots of beats. Yeah, and working he produced, helping he produced yeah, the black lick. Facilitate, yeah, he's helping facilitate these new um, collaborations within the strange, famous realm. The, the mm-hmm. new communities, people who he's operating with, he's bringing in, and they're working on other people's records. So we got Jesse the Tree and him working on stuff along with Black Lick and early adopted from New Bedford. Mm-hmm. Um, also part of all, all the stuff that we're doing. B Dolan's living on his own Island, but he's going through his like recovery from spinal surgery and all that. So he hasn't Mm -hmm. really been in the mix of the new stuff that we're doing, but I'm invigorated by the fact that this new youthful energy, even though some of us are old as fuck, but it brings (laughs) me back to the days where we just recorded and wrote and were Mm -hmm. creative for the fun of it. It wasn't with the idea of a, a tour um, on the horizon. You know, nothing is with the idea that, we're going to have a certain promo campaign behind it. We're mm-hmm. just inspired by each other's talent and what we each bring to the table and how we can bounce off of each other's creative energy. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really something I've been missing for a long time. Mm-hmm. I love it. Even though it doesn't, it's not paying bills, but it's, I, that doesn't mean it's not going to translate into something that um, might be useful in down the line. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's great. I mean, it's an awesome community. And, and again, it seems like it's like another wave of this uh, tight knit group of people. Um, Cause again, yeah, like to, to backtrack um, the, the artists that are on strange famous work together quite a bit. I mean, you'd had the duo group uh, Epic Beardman with, with B Dolan and, you know, just always on, on other, each other's stuff. So um, um, I do want to give a shout out to Alexander Brown. Oh Yeah. His album Glow Kid incorporates all, a lot of the rappers I just mentioned and you just mentioned. Yeah. And it's one of my favorite projects I've been a part of in ages. It's it's magical. I love it. Um, and he, along with Mopes, is working with um, – it's sort of like he's juggling strange, famous talent. Mm-hmm. you know all different artists and putting them together in weird ways and it's just being baked beautifully he, you know he's yeah he's got an ear um i help sometimes point him in certain directions where i'm like i don't think that rapper is gonna work well on this type of thing but i haven't you know i can hear someone else's voice on it let me see if i can get them mm-hmm. and, uh, like so thankfully we were able to get buck 65 for the dream school song which we'll have a video for very soon
psychological landscape stripped of all its lubricants the driest of humorists in a cynical sinkhole it's all about time the time is moving quick the dead panhandlers shooting the shit with a sunny disposition during a lunar eclipse multiple persona non grata shaka con artist quantum leaping card shock versus the master don dada bombastic casanova in a traveling carnival the very last of the genuine articles copy that partner i'm an impartial party to your god particle arguments the fool proves his non-existence with impossible confidence phenomenal disregard the belief of non-belief in god and we're the false positive of improbable odds impossible jaw molecules dissolve in the palms of my tiny pathetic hands scientific methods be damned my spam folders overfloweth i crammed all night for the final exam and overslept But yeah, I mean, to kind of even backtrack to some of the artists, like you've, uh, you know, expanded as well. I mean, you have a, a pretty big footprint, or at least to me, it seems you have a pretty big footprint in the UK, um, have done a lot of shows there, um, work with uh, Scroobius Pip, right? You know, so like as, as collaborators as well, can you talk a little bit about what it's been like for you um, as, as a, you know, worldwide touring artist, you know, coming out yeah. of our state here, you know? This was crazy because when we talk about when the internet, when the internet and Napster first started getting big, so we were able to access communities outside of New England. The UK was one of the most supportive right off the bat for what I do. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the first countries outside of Canada and Sweden that I got to um, visit and perform. And to this day, it's one of my strongest markets and it's, it, the UK, England, um, in particular, I don't know. I, I went out there many, many times. Um, like you mentioned before, people will romanticize the sacrifices that people make, but you don't just miss birthdays. You miss deaths mm-hmm. and you're missing mar- marriages, potential marriages. You're ruining every relationship. But thankfully I was lucky enough, um, in the late nineties and early two thousands where, Heck, my mom was just getting divorced herself and she was starting a new relationship. So she was off in her own wonderland with the new husband. Mm-hmm. I was free to do whatever I wanted. I have a small family. It's like I didn't have many obligations. I was free. I was mm-hmm. free to do whatever. And I did everything and I went everywhere I could. I never turned down a show opportunity. If someone could pay to bring me out and give me some extra scratch on the side, I was guaranteed to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. That was how I would plant the seeds everywhere and make sure more people would come back upon my return. Um, And in England and Europe in general, they were like, thanks because of Napster, they all knew my material. They all, I didn't sell anything there prior to arriving, but Mm -hmm. here I am in Sweden and the whole crowd is singing the chorus to my song Yeah, and, you know, blowing my fucking wig back. It's like, so much in that moment, when you stand there, you can't have, you can't have predicted it. You know, you, there's nothing you knew prior to that, that could have let you known this was possible a year mm-hmm. prior to that. You could never have known it. So all you can do is ride these moments and make the most of these opportunities and be prepared for opportunity, know when to uh, make the most of it and not to turn away an opportunity that could blossom to something even bigger and better. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was doing year after year after year, 
all the travel takes its toll on you. It will make you sick. It will make you hurt. Um, there's a lot of pain involved. There's a, there's sleepless nights. There's like very confusing times, especially back then when there was no smartphone and there was like, no, you had to go to a, a cyber cafe in order to get on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone had their own denomination. Money was all over the place. It was very, very confusing. And I'm surprised I made it out alive, but I did. I'm, you know, I'm glad I, I, I planted those seeds. Cause then I was able to return with other people and help them grow their fan bases out there. And of course that's, you know, uh, that's where Scroobius Pips saw me perform. And so he became aware of who I am, um, then contacted me about putting out his material in the States and then vice versa. He was putting out my material and B Dolan's material in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, these are great relationships to build that you just, you don't plan on it, but you stay open to the, the possibilities of anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hardly any place I went to knew what Rhode Island was. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm representing Rhode Island everywhere. And then like South Africa, um, yep. you know, and everyone thinks I'm from New York. So I do my best to educate people on like this little tiny sliver of land yeah. that has so much talent coming out of it. You know, absolutely. This beautiful little spot that I, I used to call my own and now I can't. Dude, well, it's so we, sad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we still have you, just by the way. We, we're not letting you. I know that you're in Connecticut, but we're not letting you go. I'm not letting you go. So Yeah, uh, <laughs> well, my license, my license plate is Connecticut plate. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, um, but, yeah, I guess, you know, we kind of skipped over it. I just would be interested in a similar fashion, though. Like, could you talk about what it was like? doing shows here in Rhode Island, starting off like in, in the late nineties, like where were you doing shows and, and who were you doing them with? I mean, you kind of mentioned briefly, you were doing some stuff with more of the like a metal hardcore uh, punk stuff, but like, what was it like for you? Yeah. Like late nineties until you, you know, till the early two thousands or whatever. Yeah. In the late nineties, I was doing a lot of open mics at the black mm-hmm. repertory theater, um, which is not, in the same place anymore. And I'm not even sure if it's still operating. I don't think so now, but that was a no. big thing. I remember in 96, um, 97 attending those things and they had great poetry readings and rap battles. I, the rap battles really were sucky, but they were good for me to learn how to do what I, I eventually, eventually would become known for mm-hmm. the Super Bowl battle in Boston and then scribble jam. But the, you know, that's where I was cutting my teeth and it was mm-hmm. in front of crowds who really, didn't give a shit about me, didn't like me. Um, but I had to go there and prove myself because I wasn't from those communities. It was a lot of South Providence cats, even mm-hmm. in 92, um, 1992 is one of the first things I was doing. Uh, man, I don't even know if the name of the club, because I'm not sure it was a club. We were doing something outside and I use the footage on my DVD, but I'm 14 years old in this footage. And me and this dude named Ams from Clockworks, which was a, a hip hop group out of Woonsocket, we came up together rapping. We did a lot of stuff together, but never were an official group. But anyway, there we are in South Providence at this block party. Um, literally the only white kids in the crowd. And we're kids. We don't have adults with us. And we're rapping our asses off. Some, a lot of the crowd loved it. They were like, wow, look at this. This is crazy. And then they were also jealous motherfuckers. It was like, 
you know, we're going to kick your ass, you know, get the fuck out of here. You know, yeah, yeah. not for you. Yeah. Which I understood, you know, I knew mm-hmm. we were always going to face that kind of backlash. But so after that, I also did a show in, uh, at vibes, I think was in Johnston or might've been Warwick, but it was like an underage club. Um, I opened up, no, Marky Mark performed and this guy who was representing me snuck me into this show and like brought us backstage for like, he shouldn't have been able to do it, but he had a, he put on a tie and was holding a clipboard. It was like, <laughs> whenever you want to get anywhere, just hold a clipboard and put on a tie and you can go anywhere you want. Mm-hmm. And he did, he like brought us backstage where Marky Mark and the funky bunch were chilling out. And I was 14 years old and I'm like, yo, he's like, what's up ski. It's like, yeah, I just want to rap. You know, he's like, Hey, you know what you, after I'm done, you can come out during my performance and hang with the funky bunch and then when we're done you can do your song i was like all right so it's like <laughs> it is shit the crowd you know obviously is going wild it wasn't a stadium or anything it was actually just a mid-sized club yeah but it was my first experience on stage like that where i was i was by proxy experiencing the loving glow of an audience who mm-hmm. just was like they were mesmerized by marky mark and the funky bunch Mm-hmm. And then I got to ride that wave. I gave the sound man my blank tape that had my beat on it. Yeah. And we went to our song and like the crowd was like riding the high of having seen Marky Mark and the funky bunch. So I got to like really benefit from, you know, I try to give him props at some point and he ignored me, but um, <laughs> Marky Mark and the funky bunch, man. Yeah. Shout out. Nice. Did, All right, other clubs. Him? No, yeah, yeah. I, skipped, I skipped important <laughs> stuff. Babyhead yeah. obviously was a big one. Yeah, um, I didn't get to perform much at Babyhead. It was, it, but the with the hardcore bands and the punk groups, I saw a lot of shows there, and I got to hop on stage with a band called Cycle, um, who are a Connecticut hardcore band that I met in college, and they let me rap with them. Mm-hmm. Um, the living room was the biggest one for me. The living room was where a lot of like seminal moments in my early Rhode Island career happened because uh, Mr. Mortal, who are you familiar with Mr. Mortal? I'm not. No. All right. He, so he had a company that put on a lot of the hip hop events in Rhode Island called, I think uh, mortal productions, something like that. But uh, so he was doing a lot of um, hip hop events where multiple style performers, like people would do graffiti there would be break dancers and okay. there would be a battle and then the headlining act and stuff like that. So I would always involve myself with those things. Most of his stuff would happen at the black repertory theater, but then when things got bigger, it was always at the living room and my biggest shows with um, my first band AOI, which formed at the university of Rhode Island um, would be at the ocean mist mm-hmm. down in South County or in Narragansett. Is that in Nar- No, that's in Miskwamak here. Matunic, Matunic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yep. So we would do our biggest shows started happening at the Ocean Mist. And then we were able to get shows in Providence because the promoters there would spread word to Providence who weren't hosting any hip hop shows because of violence and gun, uh, yeah. you know, guns and stuff like that. But so they 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 stopped doing shows, hip hop shows for a long time. But the fact that we were a band. It was like somehow we were able to bridge that gap mm-hmm. and we proved that, you know, we were doing these shows and no violence was kicking off. So then they were putting us on events with ska bands. Oh, okay. Like the agents, like we were doing shows with the agents and yeah, um, nice. Uh, the rusty, uh, what is the, uh, 
I can't, man, I can't remember. It was so long ago, but uh, I'm playing with Jesse Leach. We're like, we're doing shows with Corinne and um, Stays Gold or something like that. But, you know, he's in Kill Switch Engage now. Yeah. I was living with him when they were first recording their first album. Here I am. I'm I'm like quantum leaping between eras, but <laughs> <That's fine>. somehow <laughs> it all works together. It all ties together because so many of us are still doing this on a highest mm-hmm. scale, even though the world is so different. You know, it's mm-hmm. pretty amazing, man. Rhode Island, <laughs> Rhode Island is special, dude. Rhode Island is special. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're right. I, I don't um, know if you know this, but I serve on the board of the Rhode Island Music Hall of Fame. And so we look at this stuff and we've inducted dozens of people and it's, and it spans all of the, you know, styles of music and errors and everything like that. And uh, there is like an inordinate amount of talent that comes from this tiny state, you know, like what people have been able to do, like, uh, you know, the highest awards to just how they move stuff along. It's, it's incredible for, you know, this place that, yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people think is, you know, doesn't exist or is part of long Island or whatever else it is, you know, it's like, no, there's a lot, (laughs) there's some amazing things that, that come out of here. So, um, no, that's, that's awesome. Uh, and yeah, I mean, with, with your live show, I, uh, I'm a huge fan of Groovis Malt. They're actually, I grew up outside of Worcester. Um, somehow they, they made it up into our, into my sphere up there. And I would drive down and go and see Groovis Malt at Lupo's. Um, oh, Lupo's was the spot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. Lupo's was the spot, but the Met was, was, I liked even better. Yeah. Um, when it was connected sort of. Yeah. Like, the, like that one. where the was Met like right is now. now where yeah. the Met used to be. That was, those were my favorite shows. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, huge fan of them. And I, they were, you uh, toured with them, correct? They were your backing bands. Like, is yeah, that- I took them on tour in 2003 for the personal journeys. No, it was called uh, the dead live band, dead poet tour. Okay. Yeah. What was that experience like? Uh, or I mean, um, working with them and then working with much, to be honest, it, you yeah. know, I didn't need to take a full orchestra with me on the road. <laughs> Yeah, especially if you're kind of you're you know famously going out with CD Walkmans, right? And now you're yeah. like, oh shit, there's a bunch of yeah. mouths I need, you know that are. <laughs> but yeah, it all worked out. I, my favorite part was bringing C.R. Avery. He was just this Vancouver weirdo who infiltrated my living space at one point, and yeah, you put on a one man show that just blew the audience away night after night. He couldn't he couldn't make enough product. He was just selling out every single night. And Groovis Malt, who are Obviously, all of them are incredibly talented. They're like virtuosos at their instruments. Mm-hmm. It was too heady, and I think it was just too much going okay. on for for a regular hip hop audience to to be able to absorb, you know, and make sense like, of. Like there were too many notes in a sense, or whatever. Yes, yeah, it was too much. It was mathematical. <laughs> yeah. it was too much math. Too much math in yeah. their music. I just want a vibe, man. I don't want to be like. Yeah, and then C.R. Avery would come up with a guitar and like singing all off key, and the crowd would go wild and buy all of his merch, and like Groove Smalt would sit there shaking their heads, like, "What the fuck do we gotta do, man?" Sometimes it's just the aura you give off, dude. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That 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 was a big one. That was a big tour. It was a long tour, and it was a stuck in the middle of a string of all the other tours I was doing in the early two thousands. Mm-hmm. I was losing my voice at the time. You know, I was trying to figure out ways how to 
maintain my voice, maintain my health and just felt impossible. So screaming through, you know, swollen glands and, um, that sucks. That's like the worst part when you like, you, you, you've rehearsed, you know, you got the show down, you're ready to do it. And the crowd is ready. And you're like, your voice is coming out like this. And yeah. you want to fucking kill yourself right in front of everybody. So they feel like their ticket was worth it. Wow. Um, that, that was, man, that was cause the tour after that is the one where I almost lost my voice forever. When I did the fuck clear channel tour, I had to like go to a, um, a doctor who stuck his like camera down my throat he was like, you're going to lose, like legitimately lose your voice forever if you don't stop this tour. Um, wow. And I said, I can't risk it. This is my biggest tour. I just signed to Epitaph Records. I'm going to take two days off and rest and then try to make my way through the rest of it. And I did. And then I went mute for two weeks and I took prednisone and some other stuff. And thankfully, like the nodules and the, um, it was like uh, the calluses that built up. Yep. Eventually went away, but they come back every time I do tours. So, okay. Yeah. Stuff learning stuff like that is important. My man Chesky, uh, another dude uh, from Connecticut who tours crazy. Yeah. He was at one of the first shows I ever did in 1996. He's one of the only people to get my tape at the time. <laughs> he's, he's running his own record label, Fake Four. Yeah. Shout out. And yeah, yeah, he gets he gets the throat problems too. It's like we really? just came up in these periods where we were screaming with no monitors. We didn't mm-hmm. really like just the punk stuff was heavy. Yeah. You know, and we didn't know how to properly take care of our bodies. And also, I always felt like if I didn't hurt myself somehow, I wasn't given. I wasn't giving as much of myself as I could. Mm-hmm. So if I wasn't sweating profusely and hurting by the end of the show, I probably let the crowd down in some way. Mm-hmm. That's a mentality you had to kind of shift out of, but it's tough. Yeah. Yeah. Or just knowing that this is what's on the other end. If you, you know, are lucky enough to do it for as long as you two have been doing it. But I, I guess I, I kind of want to get into uh, just a couple of your records that we haven't touched upon. So. Um, with copper gone that is your last or you know most recent uh solo album um and uh that one was even after a period of time as well of of some records but like can you talk a little bit about uh copper gone and then we can kind of get into epic beardman and yeah copper uh, gone was um four years after the life album and within that time period between life and copper gone i had gone through some very depressive episodes and copper gone eventually became the reason to push me out of it and Mm -hmm. say, all right, my life's falling to pieces. I don't have what I was hoping I would have by taking a break from touring Mm -hmm. time to just tore my ass off again and time to just like get the fire going. Mm -hmm. And, um, but cause after 2010, those tours is when I lost my dad and, um, idea, my, a friend of mine, Michael Larson, and other lots of other stuff just started crumbling and my relationship of six years was falling to pieces. And I, um, I spent a lot of time all alone in my house in Rhode Island with my cats. And I don't know what I expected to happen. I, I, I think maybe I needed that time to myself to know that nothing comes of it <laughs> except for very dark stuff. And um, so copper gone, 
um, was the first one studio album we got to release on Strange Famous Records. Sage, uh, the first Sage Francis studio album. Yeah, because everything prior to that was Epitaph, Anticon, and when we worked with Lex Records for the Nonprofits album. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was daunting. I was actually scared. I was like, "Am I ready?" You know, we've had a lot of time to prepare for this, but we've never done an album of this scale just on strange famous records. Mm. And we had just moved from our um, distributor. We had been working with since 1999. That in itself was so scary, but it was like, fuck it. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's go. And it, like, yeah. thankfully um, it charted on billboard, something I didn't expect to happen at all. Something we never aim for, but it did. Mm-hmm. And it sold incredibly well. We toured nonstop. Um, all through the U.S. and Canada and Europe, uh, Japan, South Korea, Hawaii, um, on and on and on and on. I kept going until the wheels fell off. But I'm still the illest, still the baddest, blessed apparatus. I got silverback gorilla status. I pull the one red string that runs through your mattress to make your bed spring, sing a song of sadness. Sack, sack of shit, pack your things and go. I'm hopping freight trains with nothing but a bindle. No Little homie said YOLO. No props, I photobomb your photo ops. Busting out the Robocop. Teach me the Dougie kid, I'd rather do the knowledge. Now go home and get your shine box. You got a couple shoes of polish on the drag. This ain't no humble brag. I've sunned one too many Johnny come lately's baby come. And then after that, I was like, all right, let's focus on, uh, you know, I don't want B Dolan to always be my opener. It doesn't make sense. He's been doing that for years. Mm-hmm. He holds his own on stage. He's got his own fan base. How about if we're ever going to do a show together again, it's as a group. Yeah. Yes. Let's do that. So like Epic Beard Men was going to be our excuse to do more fun material so that when we do live shows, it can be fun. It, it doesn't have to be us retreading depress depressing material or political fire we can just have yeah. fun that was the aim that was the goal that's not exactly how it turned out but it was um we attempted it and we you know we hunkered down in scotland for months at a time coming up with concepts writing ideas um doing poetry shows together and then eventually uh, you know rolling out the epic beard men ep and the album this was supposed to be fun which mm-hmm. you know, after we lost alias that was a big um black cloud over the epic beardman mm-hmm. world because he was such a part of what we do um and he's we're both such good friends with him and his family his wife and kids we love them all it's like all of a sudden he's gone from this earth he was also our mixer. You know, he mixed our stuff. He was making beats for us. He was mastering stuff so much in one person. Yeah. Now he's gone. We were a little at a loss as to how to move forward. Uh, we figured it out with um, DS3, Dan Sawyer, who ended up recording and mixing um, a lot of the album stuff. 
and then we toured and you know the the rest is history but that's really how the the beginnings of it started off super fun and then it got a little dark and it wasn't exactly what we were hoping to experience as a group mm-hmm. and no one took to it as much as they do our solo material because okay. you know i feel like it should have been it could have gone one or either one way or another it could have been like both our fan bases come together and help like elevate this yeah 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 or only a bit of each of our fan bases like yeah yeah i'm down to listen to a group project (laughs) you know (laughs) i I didn't know the magic how to make that work but i i feel like those are really very very cool songs yeah like very dope material there Mm -hmm. special shit but is that where the the title this was supposed to be fun came about like after that the period of time was it like self-reflective in a it sense was, or was it was it? like a mantra when <laughs> oh, okay. we were creating if he, I came gotcha, up yeah. an, if he came up with something that was too heavy i'd be yeah. like this is supposed to be fun remember yeah. this like get that i know that's a cool idea but this project is supposed to be about having fun and then when we were done with it we were thinking of album titles and my wife said, I, l- I like that title. This was supposed to be fun, mm-hmm. which wasn't exactly what it was supposed to be. This is supposed to be fun. But then it was like th- when she said this was supposed to be fun, yeah. somehow that made it more even even more sense. And we said, yeah, that's the title. That yeah. is the mood that encapsulates our project and this time period of you know what we've done together. And it also is frustrating for both of us, I think, when we have fans who still never even came to learn of epic beard men like as much as we push it we have our limitations with the algorithms on social media Mm -hmm. and most of them never found out about the shows um some people are still don't think i've recorded anything since 2014 even though there's heaps of epic beard men material and other things i've done for other projects yeah even today just today on instagram like some kid commented on a post of mine where it's like well you know it really would help if you recorded it more than once every six years um, <laughs> it's moments like that i just want to reach through a fucking screen and yeah. ch- choke them off <laughs> yeah <No>! yeah. <laughs> yeah do more than that <laughs> pay attention yes yeah no exactly i mean you've uh, got even just you brought up the uh alexander brown piece you've got feature there that yeah there's just a ton of stuff that's been coming yeah, out but that rapping um, stuff's the easy yeah. part it's all the other yeah. stuff that i'm yeah. juggling that you know yeah. that's yeah no one yeah <laughs> <laughs> no one gets what it what it actually takes to uh to execute this stuff so um, i'm a facilitator is that what you is that what you think sometimes with this stuff or i yeah i facilitate a lot of things and i know how to put certain pieces together and mm-hmm. I also do data entry and um, I'm obsessive compulsive. So I will collect data and um, organize it. And, you know, until my studio is in pristine condition after the uh, holiday season, that's when I can start my own podcast. And that's when I can make enough sense of the lyrics that I have written for uh, an album to start to take hold again. Yeah. There, yeah. There is a solo album I've been working on since 2017 which had to get put on hold once I moved to Connecticut, which was Mm -hmm. not really my choice, but I had to do it to be with the woman of, you know, the love of my life. Mm -hmm. And now we're just here forever, apparently. Um, But once now I have my studio back up and running, I had to do that so I could hop on the Alexander Brown album. Mm -hmm. So now I know my studio actually works in this new area. 
And I'm excited to get back into the swing of things. But first, I know I need um, I need enough space, time, space, and space, space mm-hmm. for me to delve into it because I I, I get a little uh, obsessed. And if I can't focus on something for two hours at a time without it being like without any distractions, then it's a waste. It becomes a waste of me dedicating myself to a rabbit hole I'm going down mm-hmm. um, lyrically or mood wise or whatever it is. Like I can't do it. I have three kids, man. Like this, I got two, I get a five-year-old girl, seven-year-old girl and a one-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. And, and they're all like clam in the house. Like, bah, 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 jaw, ah, oh, oh, hey. yeah. so yeah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had, uh, I have, yeah, I, I told you I have two kids, six and four, and um, it's not to the same level of uh, recording an album, but I was like, all right, guys, I'm, like I'm recording in our storage space because we have a small apartment in Providence. So we have our storage space downstairs. Um, so I'm recording there. So they're like five feet above me. And I'm like, guys, I got to go do an interview. So like <laughs> you guys can play and do whatever, but just try not to like run around and try not to uh, like scream and stuff like that because it's going to get picked up during the interview. So, um, so shout out to my kids for like actually yeah. listening for the first time and not being too loud today. So I, I love you guys. I absolutely, <laughs> I absolutely expect for my future albums and uh, the next album for sure you're going to hear background chatter yeah. and noise <laughs> and i can't i can't do anything about it i'm yeah. just going to have to live with it and so are you i'm like it's going to be my pet sounds album you know yeah. <laughs> like they're there man they're yeah. they're adding to the ambiance of the whole thing yeah it's yeah good. that's cool uh where can people support strange famous records like what would you uh recommend them to do um, uh, I would love if people could visit the website, strangefamous.com or strangefamousrecords.com. We've been running it since the late nineties. We we're going through a new, uh, website redesign again. We've had maybe four in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're just trying to stay on top of like providing people with as much as we can I create that like artist to fan experience that is enjoyable. We always um fill the packages with extra stuff make sure people feel like you know it was worth their time and money um but outside of that Bandcamp is obviously a wonderful spot to support artists and on all social media wherever you're at if you want to like retweet something or just shout someone out that little things like that can add up and actually mean something it may not look like it to you, but even for the artists, when they see someone's giving them recognition and maybe you're exposing your followers, even if you have 10, if you're exposing mm-hmm. them to someone they never heard of before and they happen upon a video, they're like, Oh, what is this dude? Oh snap. I like this. Is there more stuff like that? That butterfly effect that you don't consider when you just like opt out of any type of support, you know, you should involve yourself somehow. I hope mm-hmm. you do. But yeah, outside of that, we're on all the socials. I'm not on TikTok, but you know, if you force my hand enough, I might like <laughs> let China into my my living room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's about it. Uh, but yeah, the, the last question I have for you, and it's the one that I always end my interviews with, uh, and it's a big one. Um, you can answer it however you like. But uh, what would you say is your greatest musical accomplishment to this point? I get asked that frequently and I always give a different answer because I have to 
<laughs> I just have to dip into my head and be like, well, which period am I going to think of? Cause yeah. those, those big moments come and go. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they're big for different reasons at, at different times in your career. Um, I'm going to say when, when personal journals blew the fuck up, when, when my solo album, my first studio album was ended up in stores and did as well as it did this, like, I've been grinding it out for so long in Rhode Island and started touring the world. Finally got to release the album. I never knew if I would do another one and it charted. It just did. It just sold incredible numbers and made the whole industry turn its head and be like, what the fuck is this? Like, who is this cat? What is this scene that he's coming from? Mm-hmm. Um, Cause there can only be one Eminem you know, as far as the industry was concerned, yeah. it could only be one white rapper, but here is this, this, like this whole scene of weirdos, not just white kids, but just all types of weirdos making mm-hmm. weird hip hop. That is somehow that people are attracted to and supporting and flocking to, and there's no corporation behind it. There's no mm-hmm. corporate power. There's no trickery. It just was an organic moment in music that you don't get to see very often mm-hmm. before they learned how to wrangle, you know, the internet and how to like tie it down and, and make it work for its purposes. Mm-hmm. That was the freedom of the internet back then. And the, the people chose, and I'm, I'm just proud. They chose me and strange famous and all the other artists that I work with. So we could tour like atmosphere um, and Anticon and me, we were touring in punk circuits in places where hip hop would never do shows before. And, um, so we blew those, those pathways open for all the other artists to go through. And I'm not going to say I spearheaded it cause I was opening up for atmosphere, but this was the first time there was hip hop shows in those areas. Mm-hmm. And I got to go, keep going back to them to a bigger audience each time. It's just that yeah. one period I'm very proud of because it's not something that could be duplicated. It's not something that could be recreated or bought it had to happen in the moment and I'm, I'm proud that I lived it. Mm-hmm. Well, Sage Francis, thank you. Uh, it's truly an honor to get to talk to you about all this stuff and kind of get into some of the uh, more details of your experience as a Rhode Island artist coming up and everything that you've done to put our, as you've said, our tiny state on the global map. So uh, thank you so much, Sage. Thank you, brother. You have a good one. She's a fairy with broken wings, I used to watch her perform And if she hears me, I hope she sings songs that had me going right back Couldn't find anyone in town to talk about how no one like that Should be confined to the ground we walk She glides, but it seems like she floats And these folks decide to crush her wings until they're permanently broke She rides, got some wind just by the way she spoke She cries, but loves to sing songs of freedom and hope On the east side, hustling, discussing things that we quote In shallow conversations as if we have deep throats We choke in our confusion, not sure if it's a heat stroke or if we need Coast, trading in our cheap jokes for her C-notes I see notes being passed, I ask to see what these creeps wrote The fine silly kids at flying privileges revoke Ski slopes have been blocked off, they can't chance it Had weights tied to her ankles, she most definitely can't skip Down, she's held down by the transcripts, my hands grip Try to tie her wings back on before they once again clip Panic stricken, she'll remain stuck on a Titanic sinking She's trying to stay up, change her plan, thinking it's okay See this is strange, but Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves In a way that kept them chained up, I'd like to see or take flight into the stars instead of letting them fly free. They keep her in jaws instead of letting them fly free.
tree They keep them in jars I put my hand to the glass so hard that it might break the prison bars It, it isn't, isn't hard, hard to see why they keep her captive She's naturally attractive, speaks with ad-libs She's uncommonly talented, ain't enough adjectives The newer disposition, justice Kids are wishing for just a kiss And it's a mission to touch her lips They can't trust her with freedom of movement That's a chance to lose her quick if she ups and splits You might as well call that discussion quick They have ways to keep her down The government's underlings enslave people in this town Especially if their culture's rich, exploiting talents Making her do a bunch of tricks with the rest of the wingless imports Repeatedly told, you, you ain't a fairy, you're just a bitch But that stick, rust your hips Anyone in town to talk about how no one like that should be confined to the ground When I was down in New York she'd send me letters and I read her passages about how I left her to the savages No matter how sad that is I didn't cry Cause it was only a matter of time before they figured me out and tried to strip my pride I knew the scoop, wish you could have seen the blueprints in my eye when I flew the coop Utilizing overground railroads in the sky, it was live or die Let me let you in on the secret of mine, me and you are different girl We don't even need wings to fly